Okay, this is a test. The scripture reading this morning is from the book of Haggai. All right, if you ever memorized the 36 books of the Hebrew scriptures, maybe you didn't realize it was at the end of the list. I'd forgotten. Okay, so I'm going to do the reading. This is a test. I haven't done the readings before. It was stump the reader time. I'll make a few changes. My name is Robin Rayborn, daughter of Lenore and Bob. In the second year of King Darius, around July 21st, if we'd had a Roman calendar, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozada, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you that saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Is it not in your sight as nothing? Yet now, take courage, O Zerubbabel. Oh, I skipped that one. Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Take courage, O Joshua, the, high, the son of the high priest. Take courage, all you people of the land, says the Lord. Work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the promise that I made you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit abides among you, do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once again in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry lands and I will shake all the nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with splendor, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine says the Lord of hosts. The latter splendor of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give prosperity, says the Lord of hosts. For the word of God in scriptures, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Robin. It was her first time reading scripture here, and I stumped her with all those really rough names, so <laughs> I appreciate your courage. <clears throat> so, uh, again, it's great to be back with you. I was gone two Sundays in about three weeks um, in a little bit of time in Belgium and um, eating way too many chocolate, much chocolate and way too many waffles in about four days, and then... Um, flying uh, to Rwanda, to Kigali, Rwanda, and spending two weeks there. Uh, I'm the chair of a board of an organization named African Road, and uh, so this was the first time I'd gone without a group of people and just gone with our executive director to do organizational work and to visit projects, to listen to the dreams of uh, what we call our change makers on the ground. And so how we work is to look for people who already are working for their uh, people, who are working on visions and dreams, and we come alongside of them and consider with them how might we help them make that dream a reality. What I love about the work of African Road is that in the word of one of our change makers, it's about release, 
and not relief. It's about believing that each person, each community has the wisdom and the capacity to make a change and to move into self-sustaining uh, ways of being and, and often just need a little boost here or there, a little help, and so we come and see how we can do that and uh, with the dream that really we will become um, unnecessary after a while, that what the work that we do will be sustaining long beyond us and long beyond um, African Road. So it was a really wonderful uh, three weeks full of some good work. My one of my uh, tasks was to interview each of our change makers to hear how they're doing, how they're understanding the organization. Um, but also a reminder that um, particularly in the culture in East Africa that there is a high value on sitting down together and eating together on relationship, on fun, and on laughter. And, um, you know, if, if, the, if you ever want to hear a really great story, ask me what I did last Sunday when I went to Rwandan Hot Springs for the first time and uh, found myself laying on sandbags. Um, it, was, it was quite a story. And um, I sent the picture to my husband. He said, did a hippo poop on your head? <laughs> green stuff streaming from my face. But, but the laughter of, um, that I experienced while I was there, the laughter of cross-cultural experiences and engagement was, um, was the deep therapy that I needed um, on my vacation. So it was a great time. I come back just full of hope about what is possible, about when in that, that each of us do have the capacity to move forward, about what the joy is of accompanying each other in life, and also uh, full of faith that God is with us and among us, that reconciliation and forgiveness is possible. So let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your presence with us, for being in this world, for being the heartbeat and the melody of our lives and of our earth. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Put us back into synchronicity with who you are and your love. We pray in Jesus' name. So uh, Raf, before I left, said you're really preaching a sermon on Haggai. <laughs> um, and when was the last time you heard a sermon on the book of Haggai? I'm not sure that I've ever heard a sermon on the book of Haggai, nor have I actually preached one on this book. But it's um, one of the minor prophets, as Robin said, in the back of the Hebrew scriptures. This tiny little book that was written about a prophet who was speaking to the Israel people after they had returned from exile to uh, Jerusalem to rebuild their lives and to come back after time in Babylon and in Persia. They've come back and everything is in ruins. And so they are trying to rebuild in this homeland which they once knew uh, to build a new life. <clears throat> And they had begun to rebuild their homes, their personal homes, but they had yet, not yet begun to rebuild the temple. And so this is the task that, and the calling that Haggai has, is to speak 
to the people of Israel and invite them to say, it's not enough to just have rebuilt your homes. We must also rebuild the temple. And the temple for them is the site of what is sacred. The temple is the place, the community center in which they gather. This temple is their heart's home. The temple is where God is and where they share life together. This experience of being in exile may seem rather Old Testament-ish, rather apocalyptic, and yet the, this word exile is something that I heard many times in the last few weeks. To be exiled is to the state of being barred from one's native country. It's a state of disorientation. And when you're in a place like East Africa, you hear stories of exile quite often. For example, my friend Filbert, who was here earlier this year speaking to us, who's an Anglican priest in Rwanda, was born in Burundi, where he grew up as an exile. He didn't have a passport until he was maybe 30 years old because he grew up in a refugee camp in Burundi, went to England to study, and didn't return to Rwanda, where his family was from, until after the genocide in the mid-90s. My friend, Pastor Stephen, who has also been here this year, once I moved to California, everyone from East Africa seems to want to come see me, so they keep visiting. Um, but Pastor Stephen grew up in Uganda, also native Rwandan, and yet... His family had to flee in the 1960s because of the religious pressure when he was five under, or the ethnic pressure because of the ethnic um, instability, his family was killed and he was orphaned at age five and found his way back to Rwanda post-genocide and began to become a citizen and become there. But so many people that are born in exile I was able to meet with another dear friend of mine, Jean-Claude, who has not met, been here yet. Um, I hope he'll be here at some point. Jean-Claude is from Burundi, and yet because of the political unrest there in the last few years, he's been in exile in Rwanda and now in his work in Chad and not able to return to his home. So exile is actually a geographical, physical reality in our world. Exile is also a sociological reality for many of us, and especially many in our country. We are exiled from the places where we can flourish and be at home through politics. Perhaps um, you, you feel like um, in this area, maybe you don't fit in politically. Maybe you don't feel like you fit in politically with our current administration, but many feel in exile politically in our country right now. We feel people are in exile because of poverty. People are in exile because of their race, because of their class, because of economics. There was a neighborhood that was across um, the hill. Rwanda is called the land of a thousand hills, and so there's just hills everywhere. Um, and uh, there was a neighborhood that was across from where I was staying that I looked out every morning uh, full of tiny little homes, and the, someone told me that the Rwandan name for that community is called No Place to Pee In. 
That's how tiny it is and how cramped. And yet because of the development that's happening in Kigali and the economic um, infrastructure that's being developed, they want to take that community down. And so uh, they're making, trying to navigate how they can destroy this community and relocate these people so they can build more expensive homes. It sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? And so these people are soon to find themselves in exile, exile from the neighborhoods in which their lives have been in. Another uh, group of people that's in exile within their home country is the Batwa people in Burundi. I didn't visit there this time, but did see my good friend from there, Everest, who also has been here. And um, the Batwa were traditionally lived in the jungles, were hunters and gatherers, were the oldest community in Burundi. And yet because of um, guerrilla warfare, because of protection for the jungles, they were forced out of the jungles and in the plight of many indigenous people in our world, found themselves uh, in these plots of, given these plots of land that really are not able to be developed or to, to be farmed and given, left there without any skills and without any resources. And so they find themselves in exile in their own country. Whenever I travel, I am like voracious reader because I don't have time to read as much as I'd like. Um, and I read two wonderful books. Um, two of the books I read was, uh, one was The Water Dancer, the new novel by ta Coates about slavery in America. And that story reminded me of how many people have been in exile in our own land because of the color of their skin. I also uh, read a really fascinating book um, that was challenging by Anand Giridharadas, and um, which is taking a really hard look at the cultural elite, uh, many of us in this room, and considering how we may not have included all the voices that need to be heard as we move forward to solve our problems, how we may have assumed we know what's best for our country, and for the world. How many people may still be in exile in our very own country? So exile is a geographical reality. It's a sociological reality. Exile is also an emotional and relational reality. Many of us are, feel exiled maybe even in our own families, exiled from from family members, from siblings, from children who, who we don't know how to communicate, who we are stuck in misunderstandings um, that go deep and long and wide. We may feel exiled by our lack of connection with others, exiled in loneliness, exiled in isolation. We may feel exiled by events in our life, there's nothing that makes you feel farther from home than losing someone you love or moving or a big life change or aging even. Like, what kind of body am I in? And exiled from who we think we are and feel we are to what's actually the reality or exiled in transitions of any sort. We may feel exiled within ourselves exiled by depression, 
exiled by anxiety, exiled by grief. This experience of exile is common in our world. It's a common human experience. And so Haggai addresses these people who had been exiled. He says to them, it will never be the way it was, and allows them to have some space for their grief and their nostalgia. He says, who is left among you that saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Is it not in your sight as nothing? And so this experience of exile, looking at what was once our home, what was once a beautiful space in our life, and feeling separated from it. It's easier sometimes, he says, to focus on our individual lives in that experience of exile, to think, okay, I've just got to build my own house, I've got to get everything set up for myself and my family, than it is to do the harder work of community building. And he encourages them, even in that sense of, in that experience of being exiled and coming back and looking at the ruins of their land, to engage in relationship, to engage in building something together. When I was away and having these conversations with these change makers in East Africa, I heard many wonderful things and exciting stories about what's happening, but it wasn't all easy. Many of these friends of mine are in desperate circumstances. Many of them are just eager for someone to just come in and fix it. Couldn't you just give us $100,000? Couldn't you just give us a little bit of a salary so we could continue to sustain our families? Certainly there's got to be a way with, and you feel that pressure of being from this place with so much and so many resources and, and still not able to fix the problem. We all understand that feeling, though, don't we? We all understand what it's like to feel exiled in some way, to feel the loss, and just want to say, make it stop. <laughs> Fix the pain. Let's end this now. And it's in that space that Haggai speaks to the people of Israel. He invites them to, to see things in a different way. He says, take courage, take courage, take courage. For I am with you, says God. My spirit dwells among you. Do not fear. Five years ago, when I first went to East Africa, I was able to visit this cooperative of women gathering under a makeshift tent to learn about village cooperative banking, what we call VCOBA, a program that was developed by a, a changemaker of ours named David Clemmy, who began in Uganda to develop this way of teaching uh, mostly women who have not been educated to, to gather together and have cooperative banking among them and to begin to build some capital through their business. 
What's different about this is it's not um, a program of microloans. It's actually a program in which they are considered to think about what do they have. And so David says, don't focus on what you want, want, want. Focus on what you have, have, have. And so slowly they, they start with, with maybe just a lot, little plot of land in which they can begin to build a garden. And from that begins to, um, in one woman's case, she now is raising guinea pigs. And I learned that guinea pigs are high protein, so apologies to every adolescent out there who may have guinea pigs raising them, but they are high protein. So she's now raising guinea pigs, and her dream is to own one of these big coaster buses and drive people around, and so she's slowly building up the capital. And I was able now five years on to visit one of their meetings, and they all gathered, and they have a big book in which they keep track of what every person is given and what every person is saving. And each person is called forward, and they bring forward their weekly contribution, which is a, a requirement of 200 francs. 200 francs is 25 cents. And half of that goes, the 12 cents, 12.5 cents, goes into the cooperative space, their, their savings account together. And half of it goes into their personal savings. And so, um, as, and some people bring more, and if they bring more, then that goes into their own personal savings, but everyone's required to give at least 12 cents to the cooperative every week. And out of that, then they give loans to each other, to help them start businesses. Or if one of them runs into problems, um, for instance, one, one woman's husband had recently passed away and so they're able to help her. And then they pay themselves back over time. So five years on, um, uh, Pastor Stephen got up and he, he welcomed them all and said something I would never say to any of you. He said, you all look so good, you all look so fat. And <laughs> and explained to them for my sake, I think, that in Rwanda, when you're fat, that means you're doing well and you're eating well. And I was chastised many times for having lost weight, actually, on this trip, because you need to be fat. I was born in the wrong country, but... Um, <laughs> It was um, this wonderful moment, and I thought, you know, actually, he's right. Five years ago, these women were a lot thinner, and they looked a lot more desperate, and now they are fuller, and their lives are becoming self-sustaining. So, what do we have, have, have? Haggai addresses them and invites them <clears throat> to locate hope in where they are, and in what they have. Invites them to, to give just a little bit to help build the community. Take courage, for I am with you. My spirit abides among you. Do not fear. What we need most is not the fix-it, interventionist, tribal God that is on our side and is going to come and make everything better. What we need is the God who offers us witness, 
who offers us amongness, who is with us and among us. This is the God that we most need. And God reminds them that everything in the world is God's. Or Haggai reminds them that everything in the world is God's. And there's this very apocalyptic sense in this text of, I will shake the world. Remember that the silver and gold are mine. Now this is a little bit of a threat to those of us who have quite a bit because we like to think that what we have is ours. This is maybe not even the news that Israel wanted. They wanted the silver and gold to be theirs. Not the other nations, theirs. Not God's necessarily even, but theirs. They knew that they could control their own house, but investing in the community was a risk of faith and trust. Haggai invites them to remember that all of this is God's. To receive life as a gift of grace, not something to own and control. And their hope becomes in their shared space together, in their life together. Not one over the other, but all together in God's abundance, in the freedom to reconcile, in the freedom to give, and the freedom to love. That becomes their great treasure. And that is Haggai's invitation to them. And as I come back and, and think about these, these 200, 200 francs being offered week by week, it's, it's such an encouragement to me to remember that in all of the places of scarcity in our lives, we all have space to give to the community, whatever that is, that we so much is possible from what we have right in this moment, despite the places in which we may feel scarcity, that God's abundance is ours and God's invitation to abundance is for all of us. Amen.